Welcome back to our series, The Apprentice, that we got started with last week, Becoming What God Wants You to Be, Instructions for Life from uh, a book in the New Testament, a letter that Paul wrote to a young guy named Timothy, and uh, the formal name given for this book is First Timothy. But we're examining some of Paul's advice to this young leader in the church, this guy who's gifted and able and used by God, maybe a little bit timid. Last week, I invited you to become Paul's apprentice as Timothy was. Uh, as he teaches us how to become leaders, we're all leaders in one area or another, but it's just about life and, and what God wants us to do. And I told you that this, uh, this first Timothy, uh, this letter of first Timothy was written at a time when Timothy was, uh, had, you know, he finished his training. He was on the job uh, in the city of Ephesus, maybe the most difficult thing he had ever attempted. He wanted to quit. Things got so hard from time to time. He didn't know what to do. He was overwhelmed, unsure of his abilities and what God wanted him to do. So the master teacher, the apostle Paul, wrote him a letter to help him a little bit, to give him some instructions for living the life and doing the job that God had called me to do in Ephesus. Last week, we started looking at this in chapter one by looking at what life and particularly the Christian life is all about. And we talked about that the Christian life is about love and the Christian life is based on mercy. And it's about transformation. It's not just about what God does to you at the beginning. It's about how you change all the way through life. And it's about perseverance. It's about not quitting. It's about you just get up every day and you know, you do what you know God wants you to do that day. And today our, our subject is how we relate to others because we talk a lot about this here. Uh, life is not just about me. Life is about the people that God puts in my life. God, it's, life is about the people that God puts in my path and how I relate to each one of them. And if I make life just all about me, I can be assured of a miserable life. But if I make God first and make my life about the people who are around me, life will be a lot better. Now, by the way, one of the things we're going to be in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, one week, a chapter a week for six weeks. But one of the things we're going to come to at the end of this chapter is the role and status of women in the church. Always a problem uh, that challenges our 21st century perception. So just hang with me on that when we get there. Uh, okay, we'll talk about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. In fact, there's this one verse that nobody seems to know exactly what it's talking about. Everybody says, well, here's five different possibilities, and, and I kind of favor number two, but whatever it is, okay. You know? So I asked Jean to take care of that one. Her seat is empty this morning, but I'm sure she'll be coming in before I get finished to tell you what that verse is, uh, is all about. So last week I read all of chapter one before we got started. But today we're just going to dive right in to chapter two. Uh, as the Apostle Paul talks to us uh, 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 on, on the, the subject of the day, how we relate to others. By the way, uh, first thing I want you to look at in, in chapter two, verse two, is the object that we have in our relationship with others. And this is it. First Timothy 2.2, 2, the Apostle says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And here's how we're going to look at that. We're to live in such a way, we're to live our lives in such a way that we draw attention to the God whom we serve rather than drawing attention to ourselves. Uh, 
we want God to be seen in our lives. I don't want it to be about me and me making my demands and me getting offended and me demanding my rights. That's not what my life is supposed to be about. And Paul mentions four values that contribute to this attitude, and these four values determine how we're going to relate to other people. And so let's jump right in. Four values that determine how we relate to others, and the first one is this. We should value prayer as a first resort. That is, pray first. And here's how the Apostle Paul starts chapter 2 of this letter to Timothy. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. First of all, that means first in priority, uh, before you do anything else. And by the way, we probably shouldn't worry too much about petitions, prayers, and intercessions, uh, three different words used for prayer. They just kind of build on each other about how that we need to make prayer a priority. The most important word in there is probably thanksgiving because we, if we don't pray with thanksgiving, our prayers don't matter much everywhere anyway. But Paul said, first of all, I want you to pray for all people. Pray for everyone because everyone needs prayers. You know, uh, if you've been around here long, occasionally I get into three commitments that I ask everybody to make. And, and one of those uh, commitments is let's love first and then stand against sin. And the second one is, let's pray more than we worry. Uh, and, and here the Apostle Paul uh, says, let's pray first. <clears throat> pray before you worry. Pray before you get mad. Pray before you make your plans. Pray before you just die, jump off a cliff somewhere. Pray first. And then Paul mentions one specific group for we, whom we are to pray. Verse two, pray for kings. We don't have a king. We have a president. We have members of the Supreme Court. We have all kinds of people over us, but we pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, which is that phrase that we read to start with. Now, it's interesting that Paul would say this since the Roman emperor at the time Paul said pray for kings was a guy by the name of Nero. Nero was one of the you know, most infamous emperors ever. He's the guy that eventually executed the apostle Paul. From what we know, had his head uh, chopped off and had him boiled in oil. He hated the apostle so much. This is the beginning of an era in which Christians were imprisoned, tortured, and even thrown into the Colosseum and eaten alive by wild animals. And Paul says, pray for kings. Now, he didn't say pray that God will strike them dead. That's a whole different thing. You know, that's what we like to do sometimes. Or if we just would wipe this guy off the planet or this woman off the planet, things would be better. But the apostle said, pray for kings. Pray for them, not against them, but pray for them that God would work in their lives. The principle of praying for our leaders applies today. Of course, we have a lot more voice in our government, a lot more influence in our society than the apostle Paul and Christians did in their day, but our goal should still be to live peaceful lives characterized by holiness or putting God first. So think about this, use prayer, using prayer as a first resort helps us to remember who is really in charge. Every time we go to God before we do anything else, we remember God is the one who's in charge. The hope of our nation does not rest in politicians or legislation. Now, God uses those things, 
But that's not the hope of our nation. The hope of your family, the hope of your business, the hope of your future doesn't rest in your own brilliance and your own ability. Our hope is in God and God alone. And when we pray as a first resort, it helps us to remember that God is the one who is the source of all that is good. So four values. The first one is this. We should value prayer as a first resort. And when we pray, we pray for all people, kings, and everybody that's authority over us, but we pray for everybody. Secondly, we should value passion for the lost. And by the lost, I don't mean, you know, you got out on a trail and forgot where you were. I'm talking about those who are spiritually lost without Jesus. The, uh, the, the scripture uses the term saved and uses the term lost without Jesus or with Jesus. So our prayer for all people as well as for our leaders, part of that prayer is that they should be saved. We should pray that all people and our leaders should be saved. The reason for this being good is because it is God's will. In verse three, Timothy, Paul continues writing to Timothy. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. Verse four, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul repeats that word all three times in six verses. Twice the phrase is all people or all mankind. This word doesn't mean just men. This is men and women, all mankind. And then in verse six that we're going to read in a minute, he also just uses the word by itself, but it's clear he's talking about mankind because he also uses that phrase. So he says this in verse five, for there's one God and there's one mediator, one way to get to God between God and mankind, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Interestingly enough, the word for the man, Christ Jesus, is also that word mankind, not male human being, but mankind. Verse six, who, that is Jesus, gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. These verses cite the unquestioned truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which should be the passion of every Christian. First of all, for there is only one God, only one God. Secondly, there's only one way for people to approach that one God, and that is through the man who is God in flesh, Jesus Christ. And the third part of that is that Jesus gave himself up to die on the cross as a ransom for the entire human race. By the way, the word ransom refers to the redemption price of a slave or of a prisoner. And this act is a clear testimony offered at just the right time of God's desire that all should be saved, that all should believe in him, that all should come to him. And Peter echoes this truth, by the way, in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Peter's talking about this promise that Jesus is going to come back one day. And everybody says, yeah, right. It's been a, whole, a long time since that promise was made. Where is he? So Peter says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient. He's not slow, he's patient. He's given everybody their chance. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's very evident, by the way, that not all are going to do that. Some are gonna choose Christ and some are not gonna choose Christ. But he died for everyone. God has a passion for the lost. God has a passion for people that have not placed their faith and trust in him. 
we should have that same passion. And if you do truly care about people that are not like you, that don't believe exactly like you, it makes a difference in how you live your life. It certainly changed the Apostle Paul's life because he went from being a killer of Christians, a persecutor of Christians, to loving everybody who was without Jesus. Here's what he said in verse 7, 1 Timothy 2, 7. And for this purpose, for the purpose that Christ gave himself for all mankind, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald, that is a preacher, and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Not, not all of us, thank goodness, are called to be preachers or pastors or missionaries, but we're all called to participate in the spreading of the gospel, and each of us has a role to play. I don't know what that role is. Maybe inviting somebody to come to church. Maybe spending time regularly in prayer, praying for people who have not come to Christ. It may be supporting the, the spread of the gospel in your community and around the world. It may be having a conversation with a friend of yours about what God means in your life, but we all have a role. We all participate in the gospel. Here's what we need to do. We need to practice wanting for others what God wants for them. We need to practice wanting for others what God wants for them, and God wants all people to be saved. That means we have to adopt the value, other people matter, it's not about me. And whether I agree with somebody or I don't agree with somebody, whether somebody's like me or somebody is not like me, other people matter. It means that we love others with the love of God. So we should value prayer as a first resort. We should value passion for the lost. And here's the third thing. We should value the priority of unity, of togetherness, of agreement. Up to this point, Paul has used a word that means mankind, uh, all people. Anthropos is the Greek word, all mankind. In the verses that, for the rest of this chapter, uh, he uses a word that means male human beings and a word that means female human beings. The subject remains praying for all people and for those that are in authority because God wants everybody to be saved. So first he addresses the men, mature men, the word is also husbands, and then he, he has a paragraph to women, mature women, the word is also wives. The main thing that Paul says to men is, get along, get over your, your macho-ness, get over your wanting to disagree with each other about everything. First Timothy 2.8, therefore, I want the men, the male human beings, the adult men, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, obviously, God wants all of his people, men and women alike, to pray for the salvation of others. But most agree here that Paul's speaking about public worship wherever it might take place. And the men who are to pray publicly uh, are to be men with holy hands, indicating men who have trusted Christ as their Savior and those who are living their lives for him. The most interesting words in that verse, by the way, are the word without anger or disputing. Real prayer uh, cannot exist side by side with anger or contentious arguing. Real prayer cannot exist side by side with hatred uh, and, and, and violence. Broken human relations affect one's ability to pray. Again, referring to Peter in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, I think it is, uh, he says that a man 
can't really pray to God if his relationship with his wife is bad because that interferes his ability to pray. The principle here is that for prayer to be effective, it must be offered in a spirit of unity and fellowship with others. One mark of spiritual maturity, one mark of growing up, really all maturity, but spiritual maturity is the ability to get along with other people. Now, we all know people who seem incapable of that, don't we? Maybe you're that way. Maybe I'm that way sometimes. But uh, there are people, when they hear a political opinion different from their own or a, a doctrinal opinion different from their own, they draw a line in the sand and they are ready to go nose to nose and fight it out. They cannot tolerate anybody around them that disagrees with them just a little bit. Even worse, I've been in church situations where, where men would get mad and divide over what color to paint a wall. Or, you know, whether to spend $10 for this or $20 for that. Evidently, there was a problem with the men in the church at Ephesus, and Paul said, get over it. You and your opinion are not that important. Get over it. When you get together in worship, I want the men to lift up holy hands, and that's a euphemism, you know, for the condition of the heart. Lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Don't women need to get along too? Of course. Paul addressed one such situation in Philippi, a couple of ladies that weren't getting along with each other. But here, due to the order of things that he's going to talk about next uh, and the situation in Ephesus, he speaks to the men and he says to the men, get along because we should value the priority of unity. All of us should value the priority of unity. Then we get to the last thing. We should be known for our character. It's not about what you look like, <clears throat> not about how holy you can act, but we should be known for our character. Specifically, we as Christians should be known for the way that we love and get along with each other. But keeping in mind that the subject of praying for all people and for those in authority, because God wants everybody to be saved, Paul now says to the women or the wives, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. But, verse 10 says, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What is Paul not saying there? He is not saying to all you church ladies that you have to be plain. Put your hair up in a bun, no makeup, no jewelry, no nice dresses. Not saying that at all. He's simply saying this, your character and your actions take precedence over how you look and what you wear. That's what influences people, that's what's important. Is that important for men too? Yes, it is. But evidently it was a greater problem with women in the church here. The specifics that Paul mentioned, you know, the elaborate hairstyle, the gold, the pearls, the expensive clothes, are not wrong in themselves. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But it becomes inappropriate when they indicate misplaced values. And so if it's all about what I look like and if it's all about my, we'd say today, my Facebook profile and all about this and all about that instead of it being about who I really am and what my character is and what I do for God and what I do for others, then my values are misplaced. And by the way, in Ephesus, it's possible that these styles maybe have been associated with the local temple, the pagan prostitutes. And so that would have been another reason not to look like that. Don't make it about the world's standards of what a woman should be. Make it about Christian character. But then Paul continues. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. 
Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, while there are cultural aspects of this and other things, we're going to look at a few things because there are some absolute aspects of it as well. First of all, let's look at the word learn. A woman should learn. That's a revolutionary term because women were not allowed to get a formal education in Roman society, in other pagan society, or even in Jewish society. Women were supposed to remain ignorant. They didn't know how to read. They didn't need to become artists or anything else. Now, that doesn't mean there was never a woman in any of all of these societies that got educated because there were. Some woman have a daddy, you know, that wanted something better uh, for her. But it was not the usual thing. That was revolutionary. And given the bias against instructing women in the law, it, it's Paul's advocating for their learning the law, not his recognition that these, these women are novices. They're just getting started as to, so they should learn quietly. That was radical and countercultural. That, so let's look at the next word. A, a woman should learn. That's, that's revolutionary. In quietness. Nobody's going to tell me to be quiet, right? We're, we're a different society today. I do not per one, permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That word quiet does not mean completely silent. There's another word for completely silent. It doesn't mean she can't ever open her mouth. But, but it means settle down undisturbed, not unruly. In other words, don't be trying to take over women in, uh, uh, here in the city of Ephesus. Don't be trying to, uh, to uh, 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 be a rebel in the situation. The idea is that women who were novices were to learn without being contentious and belligerent. Don't make it about you, ladies. The fact that Paul's teaching were not purely is evidenced by the next verses where he references the order of the universe. There is an order in which God created the universe. 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. The fact that Adam was created first is evidence that God's original plan is male Leadership. That's not a matter of sin. Male leadership is God's plan for the universe. Eve is called a helper, a, a helper suitable for him. The primary meaning of that is that the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the family. Unfortunately, men have more often abdicated that role rather than embraced the role. But it is the men who are supposed to take the spiritual lead in the family. And by the way, in verse 14, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul is not, is not absolving Adam of blame for the fall. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, he, chapter 5, he clearly places the responsibility for the fall on Adam. But the main idea is that in our lives, it should be about Christ and not about looking good and not about here's what my position should be and this is what my rights should be. There is an order to the universe, and we all need to recognize that. And then comes that verse that Jean is supposed to explain, and she's not here. I don't know what we're going to do, so I'll just read it, okay? I'm sure she just forgot. 1 Timothy 2.15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. 
most Bible students that I've read after, as I said, say, well, here's five or six possibilities, and, and uh, I prefer number two, but I'm not going to, you know, not going to die on that hill. Uh, and I, I'm okay with not being able to explain this in detail in 20 words or less. But for now, let's look at a couple of things. Women will be saved. That word saved is not, this is not talking about spiritual salvation. Having a baby has nothing to do with going to heaven or not going to heaven. That word in general means to be kept safe and sound. It often means to be healed. And I think here it probably means to gain significance. Uh, according to the order after, after sin, probably before sin, um, a woman gains her greatest significance in childbearing in general. The thing that gives a woman the greatest significance is having children. No man's ever done that. I don't know what science is going to bring in the future, but I don't think any man ever will do that. In addition, by the way, it can be said that the salvation of all humanity comes from the Savior who was born of a woman. I don't know that that's what this is talking about, but it is still a true statement. So you couple that. Couple the the significance in childbearing with living a life of faith, love, and holiness with propriety for the ultimate fulfillment of God. If they, that's speaking about the, the mothers, by the way, not the children. That's not if your children grow up good, uh, you're good. doesn't mean that at all. It means if the mothers, the ones who give birth to the children, live a life of faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, we can talk about that again some more sometime if you'd like to. But how do we relate to others? Let's bring it to a close. How do we relate to others? Well, we strive to live quiet lives, respectful of others. How do we do that? How do we live quiet lives, respectful of others? Well, number one, we lift them up in prayer, everyone, especially our leaders. Number two, we want for others the same thing that God wants for them, that they should know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they should grow in the knowledge of him so that they too may live a quiet and holy life. Number three, we do our best to get along with others knowing that the strength of our prayers is determined by the strength of our togetherness, of our unity with each other. I can't just blow you off and you can't blow me off. We need to be together. And number four, we strive to be persons of character, focusing on action rather than appearance, focusing on content rather than form, like how I look and what my rights are and, and all those kinds of things. That, this is how we relate to those in the world around us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, overall in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so I'd like to close today with that idea of praying for everyone, praying for kings and for all those who are in authority. Sometimes we only want to pray for the ones we agree with who are in authority, and we want to pray that God will, will rain fire out of heaven on those that we disagree with. And I do feel that way a lot of times, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says pray for everybody. We should be praying for each other. And it says pray for kings, top guy, and pray for all those who are in authority. So I want to pray for you. And then I want to pray for those who are in authority over us. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus and for life. Thank you that uh, if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, 
We are forever in your family, and we are guaranteed an eternity with you. And we would like that for everybody. We'd like everybody to turn to you. We'd like everyone to trust in you. We ask you to draw them and ask you to give us the grace to play out the part that we're supposed to play in the witness of the gospel throughout the world. I pray for the political leaders of our nation, for our president and vice president, for the members of Congress, for the members of the court system in our country, for all the bureaucrats that have so much power over us. I pray that you would so work in them that we could that we could honor you show people who you are living a quiet and peaceable life as we leave this place we can only do this by your grace I ask you to give us the grace to make our lives about you and not about ourselves thank you in Jesus name